Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to Front Row Knowles. And a big thanks to longtime sponsor of this program and this podcast, the Dunlap Champions Club. Obviously, as I speak, we don't know what football season is going to look like. And like most things associated with COVID-19 and the coronavirus, there are plenty of questions and not necessarily answers. So this is what I'd like you to do. Whenever we get some more clarity about football season, know this. The Dunlap Champions Club will have a plan. It's a great venue to take in football if spectators are going to be allowed this fall or whenever football season kicks off. There's shade, there's food, there's access to adult beverages if so inclined, and you can believe that they'll have as solid a plan as anything uh, involved at Doak Campbell Stadium in terms of keeping things sanitized as uh, we try to play this football season. So that said, thanks again for their longtime support of this program. I encourage you, if you have questions or want uh, some answers as to what the plan might look like, call 644-1830, option 1, for more information or to schedule a tour. And now, without further ado, Front Row Knowles. Broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in the capital city of Tallahassee, this is Front Row Knowles with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by Cornerstone Tool and Fastener, online at ctf.nu. Now, here's Tom and Keith. Good day, everybody. This is a better day than usual Wednesdays. It's not just Front Row Knowles. It's the best of Front Row Knowles. Keith, how are you, sir? Uh, I'm not here. You're not here because you're on vacation, and I'm not here either. That's why we've packaged together the best of. Now, the joke, obviously, is how are we going to fill an hour if we're doing the best of? But we managed to do it. We did find an hour worth of content. (laughs) Only because we had great guests. It is not an hour of TB and KJ talking to each other. Exactly right. So we, uh, you look back the first half of this year, and uh, back in January, we had one of the all-time great Seminoles, Mr. Punt Ruski, Mr. Lambeau Leap. Leroy Butler joined us just before he was uh, up for election into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Unfortunately, he didn't make it again, so he's still sort of on the bubble, hoping he gets the call. But it was great to catch up with him. Uh, just a good guy. Infectious. Very smile. good always, guy. Always, always like Leroy. Then we got into to COVID-19, and so our, our uh, focus shifted there. And, and, and two guys, really, who are on the front lines that we talked to. One, Myron Roll, Road Scholar, who literally is on the front lines at Massachusetts General. And then on the front lines in terms of dealing with FSU student-athletes is the new strength and conditioning coach, Josh Storms. And both those were good conversations, uh, obviously about a month or two old at this point, but still germane to our current situation. I think our listeners that may have missed the interview with uh, Coach Storms is go- are going to appreciate who he is, what he is, and how he goes about his business. Very well-spoken, well, very well-credentialed and respected in his position as strength and conditioning coach. And, then, of course, when you talk about Myron, you have to add uh, the DR period, Dr. Myron role, and uh, just heroic efforts uh, on the front line. He is a neurosurgeon, Tommy, but because of the COVID issue, was treating respiratory problems and literally having to relearn or go back and refresh on some things, showing his versatility and the depth of his knowledge of, uh, quote-unquote, the human body. So that's what's ahead over the next uh, hour, the best of Front Row Knowles. Keith and I will be back next week. Hopefully we'll have some news to update on the football front. I hope everybody had a good 4th of July. Thanks for tuning in, uh, as always. And, Keith, uh, I'll chat at you next week. Folks, enjoy the show. Front Row Knowles, straight ahead. I'll tell you what's more before I get up the floor. Don't bring me down. You want to stay up with your fancy friends. I'll tell you what's more before I get up the floor. Don't bring me down.
Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. Welcome back to Front Row Knowles. Really pleased to bring to the program one of the great Seminoles out there, and there's a lot of them. This guy, a 2008 Rhodes Scholar, Myron Roll, Dr. Myron Roll, who I haven't seen in a couple of years. I think last time I saw you, Myron, it was uh, on the sideline in Chestnut Hill. But how are you, first and foremost? Doing well, doing well. Hanging in there with COVID-19 up here in Boston, but, uh, you know, doing the best I can. By the way, it makes me feel really old to know it was 2008 when you won the Rhodes Scholar. Uh, we're named a Rhodes Scholar because uh, that's more than a decade ago now. So I guess we're not getting any younger. That's true. That's true. It does seem uh, it seems like it happened yesterday, but if you think about it, it's been a, it's been a while for sure. Well, obviously, the genesis of this interview is because it's been well chronicled. Now you've you've talked to a lot of folks in the media nationally about what you're doing, uh, and for those who don't know, sort of the cliff notes is you're in the middle of your residency at Mass General up in, in Boston, but uh, obviously COVID-19 is affecting this entire country, and so you're now on the front lines of it. So is this something you volunteered for? Is this something that everybody that's doing any kind of residency at Mass General, it's all hands on deck, or just kind of explain how you got to the role you, you're in right now and what exactly that role entails? Yeah, so Boston is a, uh, is a hotbed, I think, of infection. We have a lot of patients who uh, are from this local Massachusetts, Boston area, but then also from the region, the New England region. We are a huge hospital, 1,000 bed, and we're a huge referral center for Maine, Vermont, uh, New Hampshire. Um, we get people from uh, other parts of the country and um, even overseas as well, Bermuda, a lot of people from there. So we uh, typically have a lot of patients that just come through and when COVID-19 hit our particular city very hard, things started to change in our hospital. Uh, procedures started to change, policy started to change, and we started running low on personnel to practically manage some of these patients. We needed bed space and we needed manpower. And um, there was an opportunity to volunteer for the surge clinic, this hospital within a hospital that sees COVID-19 patients or people with analogous symptoms who come off the street. And I wanted to be a part of that. Uh, it was offered to me by our department chairman. And I felt that, you know, yes, I'm going into um, medicine as a neurosurgeon. I want to do the brain and spine. I love the central nervous system. I love to operate. But this is me being redistributed and redeployed in a different area. Uh, it's still being able to serve a very vulnerable population. So me and my colleagues, we decided to, to take, the, take up this charge and be led by the critical care doctors, the medical doctors, the infectious disease doctors, the anesthesiologists, who are uh, allowing us um, the opportunity to manage these patients and help treat them. It's a hospital-wide effort. Everybody is sort of all hands on deck. If you want to be a part of the fight, you can. And neurosurgery, we have done so. Uh, because we've had to adjust even our operating rooms have been slowed down. Our elective cases have been canceled. Our outpatient clinics are different now. We're doing those virtually. Our floor has been taken over and transferred formed into a COVID-19 only floor. So there's been a lot of adjustments in a departmental uh, uh, base, but uh, as far as the hospital is concerned in the fight, um, we wanted to put our hat in and do our part. I don't want to oversimplify this, but in essence is your, uh, you know, your, your residency, is it sort of on hiatus right now because you're all, I mean, you're not volunteering one or two days a week and then dealing with your residency, the other five or six, you're all in on the front lines right now. 
That's correct. So it's it's still happening. It's a mixture. It's a weird intertwining of uh, what we do as neurosurgeons versus what we do uh, as helping COVID-19 patients. And there's a lot of overlap, too, because if you have patients who come in who have fallen, uh, who have you know, atrial fibrillation and on some sort of blood thinner, hit their head, they have a brain bleed, but they're also you know, 87 and have COVID-19 and they're positive. It's sort of a balance between, okay, how do you manage your COVID-19? What tests do you need to get? What infectious disease consult do you need? Bio threats? What chest X-ray or CT chest scans do you need? You know, how do you manage that aspect of their health? But then also, what do we do about the brain bleed that potentially can kill them quickly? They can become safe fast from it. So there's a little bit of a balance between both. So yes, my residency program is still ongoing. The learning and training is still happening. Emergency surgeries, I just did one uh, the other day. Um, and that still happened. That was not a COVID patient. But yeah, it's sort of a balance between these two pressing issues. Neurosurgery is not something, in my opinion, I'm biased, but I don't think it's something that you can wait on. So everything has sort of happened now, now, now. And COVID-19 is sort of the same thing with how quickly we see these patients decompensate and lose their respiratory status and need to be urgently or emergently intubated. Why don't you walk us through what you're seeing, not so much with, with patients and symptoms right now, but just in terms of access to the hospital and are there enough masks and uh, equipment and and just kind of what a mental and physical toll it's taking on your other colleagues that are dealing with this. So when you walk into Mass General Hospital, uh, it's sort of like going through airport security. Uh, You have to get a mask. Um, Every employee, regardless of what position you have in our Mass General Hospital community, you need to wear a mask. Hand sanitizers everywhere. Security is at the gate, making sure that you have this app, this um, hospital healthcare system app partners uh, that tells you whether you have any symptoms or not. If you don't, then you're cleared for work. If you do, then you get triaged elsewhere. Uh, visitors are not allowed to be in our hospital anymore, so the, the normal foot traffic that goes through the hallways is certainly reduced. As I mentioned, our outpatient clinics are now done all virtually. We call up our patients to tell them about their CT scans and the MRIs uh, and basically tell them how we're going to reschedule their next appointment. Our floors, as I mentioned, have been transformed. Operating rooms, we typically run 10 to 12 neurosurgery operating rooms every uh, every day. And now it's one, maybe two. It's very, very much reduced. The volume has slowed down tremendously. The, uh, the ED, the emergency department, is full of patients who are either being intubated or going under respiratory support. Our um, uh, perioperative um, anesthesia recovery rooms that we typically use for our postoperative patients have been transformed into ICUs as well. Even some of our pediatric patients in our pediatric ICU have now been transferred to Boston Children's Hospital, the main hospital in the city, so that we can open up some of the pediatric spaces for adult patients. So we're trying to be proactive of how we create bed space, create opportunities, create um, uh, support, uh, manpower practically for these patients um, because the surge is happening and it will continue to increase here in Boston in the next week or so. Yeah, I was just reading that the peak is expected late April, I think, in Boston, and you would know more than me, but so you're, you're coming right into that. What about in terms of what you've encountered firsthand? I'm, I'm sure there's been uh, bad results, but hopefully some good results, too, with the patients you've encountered. So I'd say that our patients have, um, uh, have had to deal with COVID-19 in a way that's been trying uh, for not only the patient, but also the family. Uh, if we don't have family nearby... I'm someone who believes in the familial energy, having loved ones around, supportive people around. And if you're in this battle, in a cold ICU by yourself around strangers who are poking and prodding and trying to figure out how they can get your oxygen saturation rates up, how they can get help you uh, expand your lungs so you can recruit more 
um, more cells to, to get more oxygen to your body. This is all very difficult on the patient. COVID-19 has a propensity for hitting the alveolar um, spaces, uh, angiotensin converting enzyme spaces like the lungs. And so that's why it sits in the, in, the, in the pulmonary system for a while. And then after day five or six, you know, you have this quick decompensation that happens often with this cytokine release, sort of this storm that happens, and it becomes very difficult. Um, I've seen patients have to be emergently or urgently intubated after, you know, they're just breathing very fast, can't get oxygen into their body. They have to be flipped prone to allow their, their lungs to expand. I've seen end-of-life and goals-of-care discussion with family members who once were talking to their family member a week ago, enjoying their life, enjoying having value to their community. The next second, thinking about, well, if your loved one was outside of his body or her body and was looking at himself with a tube down his throat, would he want to live like that? Would he want to go forward like this? I mean, these are very challenging conversations to have. Thankfully, we have some amazing providers, nurses and doctors who have helped uh, keep families abreast, keep them updated, and give them the dignity and respect to uh, help work through you know, these trying times. So it's been very, very difficult, there's no question. Uh, for me, it's put a human and a real face on COVID-19. Sometimes we can be sort of disconnected from the real stories that are happening day to day, but being in a hospital, seeing it every day, um, it's, uh, it makes it more, more real. That's where I was headed with my next question. I mean, you've been to med school, you're in your third year of uh, your residency. I mean, none of this is, you've seen a lot, but has some of this been eye-opening for you? It has been eye-opening, and it's been something that we certainly haven't prepared for. You know, I went into medicine to go into neurosurgery right away, specifically. Ben Carson inspired me to do neurosurgery. I'm, you know, I shadowed uh, a lot of doctors, Dr. Chris Romana uh, at Tallahassee Memorial Hospital, neurosurgeon in, in town. You know, I've, I've had this mindset of going into the brain and spine for a while. Um, never did I expect to you know, be pulled to um, man or help manage some of these COVID-19 patients with this very novel virus that we know some about, we're getting to know more about, but frankly, I think we were caught flat-footed as a healthcare system in general, not just Boston, but around the country, maybe even the world. And so uh, certainly not something we expected, but now that it's here, now that we're gathering more information, it's about trying to find ways to um, get out in front, mitigate any of the challenges that we have, make very proactive decisions instead of reactive, and be a team throughout this whole thing. You mentioned the isolation factor for families and how hard it is when they're removed from the patient. It's hard if you don't have somebody who's dealing with COVID just being isolated. I mean, you, you could get that sense just when you watch the news or others you interact with. Uh, this has been a significant change to the way we live our lives, and it's, it's made everybody uncomfortable. And I don't mean to minimize those that have COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. Staying, you know, being apart uh, and not having that connection, that um, return to baseline is, is is challenging. And I can see it from myself and from some of my colleagues. You know, I uh, mentioned to you off offline that uh, I got married a couple months ago and I would love to have my wife here with me as I walk home every day and, you know, sort of become unfiltered with her about what happened during the day and how everything went. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I I know that my scrubs and my body could be a nidus for infection uh, that I'm exposed and re-exposed and re-re-exposed often in the hospital by dealing with COVID-19 patients directly. And I don't want to put her in that harm's way. So she's down in the South. She's down in Columbus, Georgia with her family. And, you know, we FaceTime all the time, but it's not the same as the interpersonal energy and that connection that uh, helps keep me sane through residency and through challenging times, regardless of if COVID-19 is here or 
some, you know, a, a bad brain tumor hit or something, you know, that happened in medicine. You always have these days where you need that, um, that person to help buttress you. And she's been that for me. Uh, but right now, you know, we're, we're separate. And a lot of my, again, colleagues are, are facing the same sort of issues. Some of them are staying in hotels away from their family members. Some of them are staying in a basement while their family stays, you know, up in the, in the house. So it's been, it's been very hard uh, across the board. I'll wrap up here momentarily, and uh, I want to widen this conversation just briefly since our audience obviously knows you from your Tallahassee and Florida State days. Uh, And again, certainly not to make light of anything that's much more serious than this, but what do you miss about Tallahassee and your time here? Well, I I miss uh, the food, number one. Uh, I enjoyed uh, my my experiences indulging in several different restaurants, including – one as a chain, but I love it anyway. Waffle House on Tennessee Street. Um, <laughs> I certainly, I certainly missed it. The college enthusiasm and the atmosphere of being around a young, just a vibrant place that uh, is full of, um, you know, just hardworking and caring and loving people. When you're in a fast city like Boston, it's sort of you know, go go go, get get get, let's move, let's move, let's move. The weather's a little bit colder. People are just getting where they want to get to. Boston's a great city. There's no question, but there's a level of warmth, not only just uh, literally, um, but also figuratively, uh, that you feel in Tallahassee. And having both my degrees, uh, undergraduate and medical school from Florida State, um, certainly means a lot to me. I try to stay connected as much as possible. Uh, and whenever FSU plays uh, in, in our area at Boston College or if they play, you know, Harvard, MIT for some reason, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get there as much as possible. And then in terms of your uh, residency, if I recall right, this is a seven-year residency, isn't it? So just give us kind of a, a thumbnail sketch. You're about halfway through, I guess. And, and I don't know, it's probably too early maybe for you to decide where you're going to want to practice when you finish this. But how has that experience been outside of what you're dealing with right now with COVID? It's been a great experience. I've learned from some of the best neurosurgeons who have perfected their craft in such a way that it's almost like a master um, uh, artist just painting a, a beautiful picture and you just sort of learn through osmosis being close to him or her and figuring out the ways that they do it, figuring out the ways that another physician does it, another one does it, and using an amalgamation of all those wonderful talents and trying to incorporate it into your own style. For me, I'm going into pediatric neurosurgery, uh, so I have to do another year of fellowship after the seven years are done. Not sure where that's going to be yet, uh, but there are several different hospitals uh, that are children's focused that are wonderful. Boston Children's is great. Vanderbilt has a wonderful uh, children's hospital, Miami, Emory, Sick Kids in Toronto is fantastic, and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is also a, a leading contender. I'm also going into global neurosurgery, so during my research time, in my fourth and fifth year, I won something called the Paul Farmer Global Research Fellowship, which allows me to um, go to uh, the Harvard Medical School and um, you know really take part in some challenging discussions uh, at the WHO, the governance level at the world level, about how to deliver um, surgery, especially neurosurgery, to some of these vulnerable and marginalized parts of the world. And then, practically, I get to go to Uganda and other parts of Sub-Saharan Africa for a whole year and treat pediatric patients who have hydrocephalus and brain pathologies and also spina bifida. So not only is it, um, you know, uh, speaking to my passion for, for service, um, especially disenfranchised parts of the world, uh, as you know, I'm from the Bahamas and I've always wanted to, you know, give back to my home country and other places that are start, sort of marginalized, but also speaks to my interest in pediatric neurosurgery. So very excited about the upcoming years. The residency has been going wonderful. It's challenging, no question. But I think football, just going back to football, not to, you know, simplify it anymore as we kind of, you know, alluded to in this conversation. But I, honestly, from playing football since I was six and getting here now, going through tough times, I'm seeing the way that I deal 
in challenging tough moments. It's like dealing with Mickey Andrews screaming in your ear. You know, it's like dealing with um, Clemson running down uh, that hill uh, and just seeing the fans go crazy and blocking out the noise and the distraction and really locking uh, in and being focused on the task at hand. And that's helped me tremendously. I've even had to talk to some of the Harvard medical students who mentor or who I mentor about, you know, my football mindset to it. And they hadn't played football, so they can't really experience it, but they tried to adopt the ideology and it's helped them. And so uh, it's, you know, everything is sort of built on each other. Uh, and and I'm, I love the fact that uh, I've been able to see it happen. You mentioned football. So last question, and I'm not talking about your playing days, but you're in a big sports town in Boston. Obviously, Tallahassee is a big sports city following Florida State, but where you are, you know, the Sox fans and the Patriots and Bruins and Celtics. I don't know that you have time in your schedule, but do you miss sports? I mean, just flipping on ESPN and seeing a highlight of, of something. I mean, there's that void there for those of us who are sports fans. I do. I do miss sports. An interesting thing is that my wife uh, does not know anything about sports, uh, doesn't care about it. So when I talk to her about it, she's like, uh, okay, so let's talk about what happened to Real Housewives of Atlanta. And I'm like, oh, okay, all right, that's fine. But yes, I miss it thoroughly. Uh, it's, um, I think we all do, certainly. And you're right. This is a huge sports town here in Boston. The nurses wear Patriots hats all the time. They're still missing Tom Brady. He's down in Florida now, which is, you know, they look at me and like, oh, man, you took him from us. I'm like, hold on, hold on. I'm not a Bucks fan. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not, Thing. I stole Tom Brady, guys, but it's a, it's a great place um, to love sports here and to really uh, have those conversations. But uh, I, miss, I miss it, no question. And I think for the safety of the country uh, and perhaps even the safety of the world, we, we need to think smart about when we're going to restart it. It will happen again, but we just have to be slow to, uh, to, you know, to, um, to getting it going again because we want to make sure we protect not only the athletes, but also the fans who come in close proximity when they watch these sports. I'm not sure when we'll be back to normal. It may uh, never be back to what we think of as normal. It'll be a new normal. But I do know this. You're on the front lines helping us get back there, and I appreciate several minutes of your time. Stay healthy, and uh, thanks for being such a great ambassador for Florida State. More than that, just a first-class citizen. We appreciate what you do, Myron. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate having me. Thanks. Myron Roll on Front Row Knowles. Back with more right after this. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by the Osceola, dedicated to FSU sports and fan experiences. Sign up for a free trial at theosceola.com or call 833-FSU-NEWS. Back on Front Row Knowles, big thanks to Jerry Kutch from the Osceola for joining us. Uh, He didn't get a chance to mention, so I'll do so now. The Osceola currently has a 30-day free trial going on, so check it out if you want to read his column and sample the, the work that he and Bob Ferrante and Patrick Burnham and others do, uh, go ahead and subscribe. Try it out for 30 days at the Osceola. Shifting gears, we mentioned uh, earlier in the program that we were going to have FSU's head strength and conditioning coach join us, and that is Josh Storms. And I know that uh, you probably feel like you've been hit by a storm here because you can pre- prepare for a lot of things in coaching and in life, uh, and then you just have to adjust. And I imagine adjusting on the fly is really what you and the rest of your strength coaches and the entire coaching staff are having to do right now giving there's no way that you could have scripted or prepared for the situation we're in at, at present. Yeah, it's definitely some, uh, some uncharted uh, territory and some adversity that I don't think anybody expected. But, uh, you know, we're kind of in, in the mode right now trying to respond the best way we can to the situation and uh, putting together the best plan to try to keep all of our guys that are, that are off campus right now uh, prepared and 
um, with as much, much uh, information as, as we can and try to do the very best job we can do until we uh, see this thing through. I've got a lot Coach, of most of your Go ahead, Keith. Let me jump in, Tom. Coach, most of your kids are used to working out in, in what is a top-rate facility at Florida State. And now they're back home, and, and let's just be very, very, very basic. Some of them don't have access to weights. How, how do you script to put together a program for them to continue to mature when they don't have access to the equipment they're used to, uh, to, to utilizing? You know, I'll say this. We're, we're pretty fortunate right now, and the majority of our guys um, still have access to a place to train. Um, we get a pretty good number that still have access to a fully outfitted uh gym with most of the things they're accustomed to using. Um, we do have a small percentage of our guys that is in the situation where they don't have anything. Um, and we kind of knew that going into the situation that we kind of get a little bit of uh, kind of all over the board of what guys had access to. You know, we know some guys are in the gym, some guys got nothing. And then you got some guys that are somewhere in between where, you know, they got, you know, some dumbbells in their garage and a, a couple uh, odds and ends pieces of equipment to work with, or they have bands or whatever it may be. So kind of what we did as a staff is we kind of have multiple, multiple programs going. They're kind of individually tailored to those guys' situations, you know? So if a guy's still, you know, if you're, uh, if you're James and you're down there and you have access to, to your high school gym and you got everything you know, at your fingertips you need, then, you know, he's still on our, you know, uh, you know, uh, barbell based plan that we, you know, some of what we give those guys and they're off campus um, stays true to kind of our, our pillars of training, uh, but with some basics in it that you should be able to accomplish any place that you have uh, standard basic training equipment. Um, you know, after that, we got a plan put together for guys that have nothing but body, access to body weight stuff. You know, you can kind of see uh, Coach Dowdy on Twitter uh, demoing a lot of that stuff throughout the week uh, for those guys to follow, giving them some some options and flexibility and, and information in their training. Um, and then with that, we got guys in between. And so then with those guys, we're kind of, uh, you know, if they have bands, we have a, a, a band workout that Coach Coleman takes care of for us. And then everything in between. So it's a lot of uh, a lot of communication, a lot of individualization right now, just making sure all those guys can uh, maximize the, the situation that, that they're in right now. How do you replicate the, um, and I'm going to use the term peer pressure, I guess the better term would be working and pushing a teammate, but how do you replicate you know, the age old thing that if I'm working out by myself, I may not work out as strenuously I would if I've got my teammates around me. How are y'all addressing that issue? Yeah, well, and that's one of the hard things right now, because at the end of the day, everything they're doing is voluntary um, due to the, to the way the rules are set up during this period of time. Um, you know, so a lot, of, a lot of it comes from, you know, our guys are naturally competitive guys and, you know, they communicate with each other. They have guys that, are, that they're working out with currently and maybe it's not in our, our normal, uh, our normal setting and, and climate of our, of our program, but, but they know that their teammates are getting after it. And, you know, that's where the, the whole social media thing comes into play. And those guys see what, what, you know, not just their teammates are doing, but they see, you know, guys, I know that play other place, they see what they're doing. And, you know, it's, it's, it's of our mindset that, that it's our job to outwork those guys. And uh, so that's where you kind of have to fall back on the the culture that, that we've tried to instill you know even though we haven't been here at florida state very long you know we we, we had a, a very strong winter program starting to lay down the foundation that, that we're still trying to build on right now coach i see a good opportunity for us you and i need to start a new business body by zoom you <laughs> <laughs> see a lot of places it seems to me that's what it's uh that's what it's turning into is uh uh, you know, I've seen everything from, you know, guys building their own squat racks to things I've seen other schools do that look like Richard Simmons running aerobics classes on Zoom. So seen a little bit of everything. Coach, let me jump in here. And I know you had a chance to listen to the tail end of our previous conversation. And it is a little bit of a dichotomy because on the one hand, 
athletics directors and college athletics, TV networks, they, they have to plan for every contingency out there. But you have to proceed as if we're going to report on time and players need to be in shape on time. I, I'm wondering how you balance that and also with the fact that you've only known the Florida State players for the last few months as compared to if you were still at Memphis or Arizona State where you had a longer standing relationship. How difficult has that made your role, those, those couple of variables I just threw in there? You know, right now, as far as, you know, planning for the future, you know, we're kind of in a, in a ever-changing situation. You know, all of us are. And so kind of what we've done, you, know, you can't plan for the unknown, but what we, can, what we can do is look at our calendar and kind of look at the, uh, the, the watershed dates that are coming up. You know, when, when does summer school start? When do we originally plan to start our summer program? When does the second session of summer school start? Those types of things. And, and basically what we're doing right now is I'm, I'm planning for the, the next earliest available date. So if we were to get an all call by you know an, an all good call by then that we would have a plan and we'd be ready to go, uh, knowing full well that if that that, if that date comes and goes and we're still you know in the same situation we're in now that I'm gonna crumple those plans up, throw them in the trash, start working on the next date. Um, so that way eventually when we do get that call that that we have a we have a plan in place and we're be ready to go as soon as we can get all of our guys back here on campus. Um, you know, and as as this deal first came down, you know, I spent a lot of time in my head going back and forth. You know, what's 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 better what's worse what's more or less advantageous right now is it being new at a program where you haven't had the years and the time to to build your culture um or is it being at a place where you have a have that built and you have guys have been in your program for a lot of time um and there's there's pluses and minuses to both but at the end of the day we're, you know, we're not in a situation to choose our situation our situation is what it is and, and to me i think one of our largest advantages we have right now here at florida state is is that we are new um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, we're coming off of a winter program where we saw huge progress, uh, you know, not just physically, but just in the, the climate of the program. And right now, from a motivational standpoint, we got a group of players that's very eager, I believe, for more of that. Um, they've gotten a taste for what, what this program can, can give to them if they're putting the work in. And I think that's a, a very powerful motivator right now to, to not let that slip away and to, to keep, you know, to stay thirsty for more of that. And um, I think that's a real powerful uh, driving force behind our guys staying consistent right now and uh, taking care of their business, both academically and physically. Coach, you heard us talking on the tail end of that conversation with Jerry. I'll just ask the pointed question. Have you thought through, do you have an answer as to if Florida State's going to play on this date, how many days or weeks do you need the kids under your care to get them ready for that date in order to play football? You know, that's a, that's a, a question that's getting put out there a lot lately. Um, and, and ultimately, um, I'm kind of in the belief that regardless of what my belief is on that, that – Eventually, a date's going to get uh, put out there that we're going to have to work with, and it, it's it's our job to be, you know, uh, skilled craftsmen in our roles and maximize whatever time that we're given, whether that be ten, eight, six, four, two weeks, whatever we're given. You know, it's it'll be it'll be our job to have the the plan in place to that will best uh, set our guys up to to return to training in a healthy manner to return to playing football uh, and try to be the most prepared as possible when we get there. Um, ultimately, it's not going to be you know my choice nor our choice when when that date happens so we're just be ready to go when the when the time comes coach i don't want to oversimplify this but we would still be in spring practice right now if this was the norm yes sir i'm making an assumption now but if you're in spring practice then it's a time where maybe you're not in the weight room or lifting as heavy as you would at other points of the year so really the question is as you look at may june july are 
Are there any months that are more critical than others in the typical development or off-season weightlifting uh, or, or conditioning program that well, with the players? I, kind of what we're looking at, you know, right now in spring ball, uh, typically where our schedule would set up is we'd practice on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Um, we'd still be uh, three big training sessions during the week on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Um, ultimately, our goal from a developmental standpoint in our program, it, it, it's our job – our plan isn't set up to be uh, game ready for spring ball. You know, spring ball is still a, a developmental building phase of the year. When um, we will stay from a training standpoint, we'll stay pretty heavy during spring. We will work all back up to about 90% during spring ball. Um, you know, with that, there's some different considerations are taken in the training with, uh, you know, the volume we, we, we operate at and some other things to make sure guys can still, you know, function well and fly around at practice. But from a, a, a lifting standpoint, you know, we've we got to stay training heavy because ultimately what we're looking at is not just the block of spring ball. We're looking at how this will transition into the month of May, how the month of May will transition into our summer program starting in June. So, you know, each, each block in the training year will, will, you know, play off of the previous block and then also transition and progress into the next block of training. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, our most important time of the year, you know, is the summer program when it comes to, you know, getting a little more specific in our preparation, getting those guys ready to play our style of football, um, you know, starting to, you know, work on the, the adaptation from, from general preparation to more specific preparation as we get closer to, closer to camp and closer to time to play. Um, and, you know, right now, kind of all of our uh, traditional models that we would, we would operate with are kind of, kind of in the holding pattern, you know, waiting to see what this, what this is going to look like from a, a time standpoint. Coach, let me widen it a little bit. And I know, you know, so much is unknown and I appreciate your candid answers. And for those just tuning in, we're talking with Josh Storms, the strength and conditioning coach for FSU. Take us back to when you first met Coach Norvell and sort of the relationship you've developed because you've been together eight or nine years. I mean, did you just know right away you're kind of cut from the same cloth? And because obviously there's a chemistry there and there's a reason that you left where you were to, to follow him here to Florida State. Yeah, you know, we met in uh, 2012 when Coach Graham, Coach Graham's staff came to Arizona State. Um, you know, uh, knew, knew pretty early on, you know, just from the, the uh, you know, core tenets that that program was built around and then seeing how Coach Norvell operated within that and just the, the, the way he coached his guys and his passion for preparing to play the game and, you know, the care he took not just in the X's and O's of football but in those guys – off the field and in their, their, their personal development, their academic development, and then also in their, in their, the, in their physical development, you know, I knew that we, you know, were kind of, uh, you know, moral compasses were both pointing the same direction in a lot of those areas. And, uh, you know, we'd had a lot of conversations and just, the, you know, the way things are and the way things should be and the, the, you know, how to go about things. And I think there's just a, a general level of, of, you know, unsaid trust that was, it was built, you know, relatively early on there. And, uh, you know, we were fortunate to have some fortunate to have some good success there that opened up some, opportunities for for him to advance and move on which also in turn kind of opened up opportunities for me to you know advance and move on as well um you know my opinion I wouldn't want to work for any other head football coach in the country coach isn't it amazing with all the technological advances and the things from a technique standpoint we've changed over the last 30 or 40 years it, it's still a people business isn't it it's uh, getting the players to trust you it's getting the coaching staff to trust each other and it's it's the building of that culture yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, I, I say it all the time, you know, the, the X's and O's of football are great and the X's and O's of training are great. But the, at the end of the day, if it's not going to be relationship based, it's not going to work. It's not going to have sustainable success or maybe even success in the first place if it's, if it's not building the foundation of relationships. And, uh, you know, that's one thing this time right now has allowed us to do is, 
you know, with, with training being voluntary, you know, we were still reaching out to our guys on a regular basis throughout the week and touching base with these guys. But, you know, it's kind of an opportunity to talk about a little more than just football. You know, we're just training, you know. Uh, and so, you know, as, as much as we'd rather all be together every day and have all our family under one roof, you know, this time has given us some, you know, different different ways of, of communicating with guys and, and about some maybe different subject matter than we typically would on a day-to-day basis when you're caught up in the in the machine of, of preparing, you know, to be a, a championship football program. And so, you know, we're kind of trying to, you know, it's one of the things that maybe a silver lining in all of this is, you know, you're starting to develop some relationships with guys maybe you didn't have as – good of a, or as deep of a relationship with before. And also it's an opportunity for us to display as a staff of, the, of how much we do care about these guys and, and how important their uh, personal success is to us. And, you know, it's our job to help them get there. And so we've been able to do by going about things in a different way. There has been some, some positives, I think that, that have come along with this that will we'll pay off in the future. And coach, we'll let you get going after this. What has excited you from the moment you knew that coach Norvell was here at FSU or that you had an opportunity to come to Florida state just in terms of being at a place like Florida State, and I realize you've been at Arizona State and you've been places with tradition and you helped Memphis climb to the top, but, uh, you know, just kind of your thoughts as, as you've, and it's been an atypical first few months, but, but you've had a chance to settle in at Florida State and, and see the tradition and learn a little bit more about the program. Yeah, I, I mean, up front, I mean, this is, I mean, Florida State is a, is a destination place in college football. Um, you know, and every, every school has a certain level of tradition, but, you know, we're talking about a program here at Florida State that has, you know, one of the all-time traditions in college football, you know, and, and to, to go to a place that's such a uh, uh, sought-after short list place to be is, is, is nothing, nothing, nothing short of phenomenal. You know, a program that I grew up watching, you know, you know when I was in high school in the 90s, you know, of, of, of what this program was at this time and the way it was viewed and, and the way that that's kind of stuck over the years. And, you know, suddenly you find yourself a kid that grew up in South Dakota and, you know, you, you put that, uh, put that, you know, shirt on every day with that seminal logo. It's just, a you know, life takes you on, on uh, strange and unexpected paths. And, uh, you know, the, the, the excitement of being here and, you know, being able to not just be a part of that tradition, but to be charged with the, the job of, of bringing this program back to the level where, where it deserves to be, where it should be, where, where it can be capable of being is, is a really, really exciting task. You know, I think one of the biggest things for me was, uh, you know, the, the mat drills is something that we've done, you know, um, you know, everybody kind of has their own version of mat drills, but the, the version we've used since 2012, Coach Graham, you know, came directly here from Coach Bowden and Coach Andrews. And, you know, we always stayed pretty, pretty true to the, the way that was set up and how it was uh, orchestrated and the things that we were, were pushing to accomplish with that program. And uh, to be able to come back here and, and re-implement that here um, it was, was not just exciting to be able to do that, but then probably our third or fourth session of it this winter, you know, looking over and, you know, seeing Coach Andrews out there with his arm, arms crossed, observing what's going on, just like that's a, a – you know, no, no pressure in that situation, right? You have the, the godfather of that watching over your shoulder, you know, trying to watch you, you know, recreate what they, what they put in place here. And, you know, that, that, that stuff's come up for all of us, and that's, that's exciting. I mean, there's an extremely special but place. Thanks for, thanks for ruining my next meal, Coach. Matt drills. Oh, gosh, there goes my appetite. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was just going to say, Coach, that, uh, yeah, we're going to end it there because Keith starts feeling a little queasy when Matt drills comes up as a step. We appreciate what you're doing. Uh, you know, you've been welcomed to Tallahassee by plenty, so we'll welcome you as well. At some point, uh, we'll return to normal, or maybe this is the new normal, but either way, we'll make it through, and uh, we appreciate a few minutes of your time. So thanks and good luck. Sounds good. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Coach. Gosh.
Josh yep, Storm, the strength and conditioning coach at Florida State. I mean, uh, Keith, it's just like every business. We can all uh, we can all study our major and we can read books on on how to deal with the day to day. But uh, there's not chapters on this so much. So we're uh, we're figuring it out as we go. As we said back in Wildwood, we're plowing new dirt. That means the crop will be better. And that is an expression that I've never uttered, but I'll let that sink in with our listeners, and we'll come back and finish up Front Row Knowles right after this. The rain was unstoppable. It was always cold. No sunshine. Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. Back on Front Row Knowles, the uh, Earl Bacon Agency hotline has stayed busy today. We're going to reopen it once more. Uh, before we do so, I'll remind you that if you've got a do-it-yourself project that needs to be finished, go visit Ron and his knowledgeable staff at Cornerstone Tool and Fastener to take care of all your power tool needs. Ron and company have been uh, big supporters of our program over the years. You can call them at 580-1200. Visit them online at CTF. Dot NU. So we uh, we reopen uh, that Earl Bacon Agency hotline and say hello to a uh, a, a great Noel and a guy that we haven't connected with in a while, but uh, you've heard his name, you know him, Leroy Butler. Mr. Punt Ruski is on the line. How are you, sir? Hey, how's it going, guys? We're we're doing great. You know, I called you Mr. Punt Ruski, but that's the FSU world. It, you know, in Green Bay, you're that's Mr. Right. Lambeau Leap, aren't you? You've got you've got that's like split right. personalities that's there. Right. <laughs> I think, matter of fact, whenever I'm home in Jacksonville, Florida, that is what people talk about the Punt Ruski. But as soon as I come north. Yep, it's the Lambo Leap, and and when I'm in the Midwest, or uh, out way out west, or back in California, they actually talk about both. So it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so, all right, set the record straight. Was that was the Lambo Leap premeditated? Did it just happen organically? What's the history? Oh, oh it definitely was not uh, premeditated. It was spontaneous at best. Um, it was just something that I'd never even thought about, but I just know that. You know, in Green Bay, the fans are everything. We don't have an owner. You're owned by the fans. And I thought it would be a great way to celebrate, to actually jump up and hug the fans, the one, you know, fan base that I think sometimes as uh, players, we always take our fan base for granted. But here's a here's a way to thank them and show how much you love them and you appreciate them buying tickets and making you relevant. So I thought it was awesome. Now, Leroy, be honest. I, I don't know if I read this or made it up, but something in the back of my mind says when you went to do that the first time, right about the time you took off, you went, what if I don't make it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing about that is if you look at that on YouTube, it was shocking to the fans what I was about to do. They didn't really know. And one of the guys had a beer in his hand. So he wasn't expecting me to jump up. Maybe just come to the wall right. and high-five them. So when I jumped up, he wasted his beer. And I just, I'll never forget those famous words he said to me. He hugged me and told me, and he yelled that I owed him a beer. And it was just amazing how funny it was the more and more we talked about it. So the fans, they didn't expect anything. I mean, they were just kind of in shock. So because if they were, I think if they would have did it a little bit better, but it was, 
just so awesome because it was spontaneous and fun. And at the time we were playing the Raiders, it was I, it was at the time my coldest game with the wind chill it was like almost like ten below zero. So it was I, I was shocked. I was telling guys on the bench earlier. I said I'm surprised the stadium is still full because we was winning like twenty one to nothing or something like that. But the fans really love their football here. Well, I'd be willing to bet you that that gentleman that lost his beer can bring up that YouTube video anytime he wants to, and that's a price he was more than happy to pay. And somebody will buy him a beer. Exactly. <laughs> oh, no question up here. You, there's no problem up here, trust me. We're talking with Leroy Butler. Okay, I got to ask you one about the punt Ruski, and then we'll get to the business at hand, which is congratulations, by the way, that you're, a, you're one of 15 finalists right now for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and we'll have that conversation in a minute. So FSU fans know the punt Ruski. We've all seen it. We've all heard different tales about how it got there. But I want to know your reaction the first time whoever it was said, this is how, this is what the fake punt looks like, and, and trust me, it'll work. I mean, do you recall when the first time you saw this thing? Yeah, I remember um, when Coach Bowen was talking about it, we were actually, as players, we were thinking about saving it for Florida at the end of the year because you can only want run – one fake punt like that, I mean, probably in a generation. <laughs> but we tried it in, in practice, and it didn't work. So I think he was, like, discouraged. Like, well, nah, we're not going to do that. But in the actual game, when he told me to run it, I just kind of looked at him like, are you sure? I mean, we're, like, backed up on our own, like, 20, and it's raining. and <laughs> and But in his mind, you know, and he said this that he wanted somebody to win. Coach Bowden never want, was one of these guys that had wanted his team to feel like he was never trying to win the game. So if we punt, the game would have been over. So um, I thought it was just a brilliant play. It really was. And I mean, I think that most of the guys on the team, and uh, I, th- I think they were shocked that we were going to do it. But I, I think deep down inside, they said if we do it. It will catch them by surprise, so hopefully it'll work. Leroy, what did y'all call it? Did you call it the punt ruski? Yes, yes, it was called. Well, it was a combination at first of punt ruski and fumble ruski because it was a it was thought of at first for Dane Williams to put the ball on the ground and I kind of pick it up. Then we said, well, wait a minute, if that happens. Um, it is wet. What if somebody kicked it by mistake or some, so? No, don't put it on the ground. Just put it between his legs. And I had to just kind of pause for a minute because we want everybody to think the ball went over the punter's head. Because when that happens, it's like a delayed reaction. The crowd went nuts. But they thought the punter was the ball was going over his head, and they weren't paying attention to me and uh, Dane Williams and. But it was one guy out of my uh, right corner of my eye. He kind of saw me at the last minute. But after that, I was gone already. Well, I, I was told that you got a negative from a technical standpoint on the play because you didn't pause long enough. <laughs> well, and then I didn't score. So it was two <laughs> negatives. <laughs> Richie Andrews had to save my butt. That's my buddy. I mean, having a great kicker helps when you go out of bounds on the three-yard line. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the real hero is Richie Andrews. <laughs> <laughs> Richie and Tim Corlew was the punter. So there's some FSU trivia for you right there. We're talking with Leroy there Butler. So 
uh, you know, those are obviously are very, you know, probably two more memorable plays from a college and pro career than anybody out there has. And they're great to reflect on. Unfortunately, they're not part of the resume when the Hall of Fame folks get in a room and start having this conversation. So I guess, um, you know, as you've been through this, you've been a semifinalist for the Pro Football Hall of Fame three years. This is your first year as a finalist. Uh, is it something that's, I mean, obviously you'd love to get there, but do you think about it often? Are you concerned about it? Is it worrisome? Uh, are you waiting by the phone the day that they're sitting down and meeting about it? I mean, just what, what what's in your mind about it? If anybody out there, if you know me, you know that I'm enjoying the journey. So I'm not going to be upset if it doesn't happen. But I don't really think like that. I think like it's going to happen because it is a leap year, right? I mean, this is the fitting year to do it. If, you, if there's any year I'm going to get into the Hall of Fame, it would be this particular year. So it's just a lot of things align uh, in my uh, favor. And when you're a finalist, they have to have a debate about you. Somebody gets up there and tell your career how, you know, who saw it. I think that benefits me in a way because when you're a semifinalist, they don't get a chance to see anything. Because everybody's made all pro, everybody's made all these pro bowls. But what separates the player? And to me, what separates me is, I covered the best receiver on third down in the slot. I covered running backs and tight ends. And I backed the quarterback, got interceptions. But not only that, my whole career is about the fan base. I'm the only celebration that you have with the fan base. And I think that's very, very important. And hopefully that'll be enough. First 20 interception, 20 sack player in NFL history. And, you know, as I look at the 15 finalists, Leroy, there's three other safeties that are that are among those finalists. So part of the deliberation is going to be about Atwater and who was really a contemporary of yours, and then John Lynch. The early part of his career was was the latter part of your career, and then I think Troy Polamalu. I mean, that's really a different era because he was the next decade by the time he started playing. So. His hair's a little longer than yours, Leroy. <laughs> 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 but I, I guess what I'm saying, I, you know, if you're on the committee. It, it doesn't feel like, and they're only going to take five out of these 15, that they would take three safeties out of the group. And to be fair, there's I don't have the full list in front of me, but, I mean, there's a lot of other really strong candidates. Obviously, they're one of 15 finalists. Right. So how would well, – and you are and you were, you know, and I guess you and, and Steve, if I'm not mistaken, you're the only two players from the all-decade team of the 90s that are not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame at this point. And see, that's the thing that, you know, um, when you're a finalist that they bring up, and see, Steve's been a finalist for the last three years. I think Lynch was been a finalist for finalist for six years or something like that. So I said to myself, self, if they were going to get in, they'd be in already. So I don't think that's going to stop me because none of these 50 guys or 48 guys, they've never heard of my story yet. So if they want to, you know, put me and Troy Paul Amali in, that's fine. <laughs> but if some reason that it just, when you look at most, uh, highlight. If you could just see a guy just making hits, I don't think that's enough. I think you have to be make people around you better. You have to intercept passes, sack quarterbacks. I mean, cover people. You have to do everything. I mean, otherwise, you know, why would you be a finalist? So I think that makes my case very strong. And again, I'm enjoying the journey. It's a lot of fun. Um, I think I won't be all 
nerve-wracked when I get down to the Super Bowl in a couple of weeks. I'm going to have fun with it. I really am. I mean, because you think about how many great players wish they could be in this position. So I'm going to take advantage of it for the most part and know that one day when you're a finalist, one day you will get in. You just don't know when. Leroy, I feel like this part of your story doesn't get told as frequently. Maybe it does, but I, I'm unaware that that Florida State fans, you know, the average Florida State fan would know that you had some uh, physical issues growing up. I mean, you were in leg braces, sometimes in a wheelchair until, until middle school or something like that. So I'm sure that you have shared that message to have the kind of career that you've had in light of the, the challenge that you had early on. What, what do you tell folks when you get an opportunity to talk or what would you share about your personal experience there? Well, I have to let the, uh, the kids or parents know I was a special needs um, student uh, in, in special education. So my teachers were my heroes. And I remember having a discussion with my hero, my mom, and I remember her telling me the real heroes are people without capes. And while, you know, they can't fly, they can't, like, they're not made of steel. They're teachers who work every day for eight to nine hours, sometimes 10 hours a day for less money because they love kids and want kids to benefit from um, some of the great things in school, public public school at that. And you're going to be one of those kids. So you go to school and you respect your teacher and you, you learn. So when kids bully you for being poor or being small or you ignore them and you, you would disrespect your teacher by not making it out of the project. And I remember when Coach Bowden, who changed my life, you know, I was a Proposition 48. That mean I had I couldn't I didn't pass the SAT test and didn't have a higher core GPA. But the NCAA said you can still give six scholarships if you want to. Now some students, I mean some schools, chose not to do that. But Coach Bobby Bowden, not only did he put it on a fast track to give me a scholarship, he actually came in the project. I mean, he was. He was everything to me. I mean, this was a young man that said, I need to give LaVoy Butler a chance. And I'll never forget that. I, I just, it's emotional talking about how all of these universities, I got all these letters from all these universities. I was all American. But as soon as they found out that I was a, I was a Proposition 48, they all pulled their scholarship back for Florida State. Um, and Coach Bowden and Brad Scott, not only did they say, we're going to give you a scholarship, we're going to hand-deliver this thing and make history. So we want you to get out of the projects and come to Tallahassee and learn. And and I remember Coach Bowden said, now you can't play your freshman year, but you can come to school, so don't worry about it. you got plenty of you got enough talent to make up for the following year, my sophomore year, and he was correct. So... Um, if I am lucky enough uh, to be in the Hall of Fame, Coach Bowden would be very instrumental in putting together my speech or delivering my speech or being there with me every step of the way uh, because he was just paramount in my life because he taught me to turn that disability into something great. I mean, you don't have great feet like Deion Sanders, but you just make plays. And that's what Mickey Andrews convinced me. You didn't need it to be a 
certain type of a player. Just make plays. And as long as you do that, FSU will have you. And so I really appreciate that. That is well said, and uh, we can't thank you. Now, by the way, a little footnote here. You ended up moving from safety to corner your last year to take over for Deion Sanders. So, you know, that's a nice little footnote on the resume, too. Hey, Leroy, enjoy the next couple of weeks. Enjoy the journey, as you said, and uh, come on back to FSU. Find me on the sideline. Love to catch up, uh, and congratulations on a great career. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you guys. Uh, going up. I'm up in the frozen tundra, but whenever I can – to talk to my family down in Tallahassee. I would love to do it and go Knowles. Thanks, Leroy. Take care, brother. Leroy Butler, uh, one of the all-time FSU greats. Good to catch up. Unfortunately, Keith, uh, the way today's show unfolded, really good show, but we don't have a lot of time to react there. I know you'd love to react to the Bobby thing, but I, I think we're out of time. We'll just say we'll revisit next week. How about that? All right. He's Keith. I'm Tom. Thanks for tuning in. We'll do this again next Wednesday. So long, everybody. We don't need no we don't need no force control.